Well, thank you so much, and good morning. New Year's weekend, an opportunity to be able to evaluate, take time, reflect, think about how God has been working in these past months, year, and how God is guiding and directing with regard to this coming year. I want to be able to position us between 2015 and 2016 now with a passage of Scripture that in our Philippians series of 2012 we considered, but return to today for more of a, a special reintroduction, and that's found in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 16. So I'd ask you to find your way there in our Bibles, and we're going to be looking at this passage through the metaphor of the athlete and the athletic involvements, because in some way, shape, or form, it seems as though the Apostle Paul is drawn to this whole idea of athletic imagery as he wants to communicate to you and to me the idea that this matter of the Christian experience is one in which we have to participate in with all our mind, heart, and soul. We don't earn our salvation. We don't achieve it. But what is happening is that as a result of what Christ has already secured on that cross, we are now set out in that arena to be able to run the race, which is the metaphor here, in a way that brings glory to Jesus Christ. So this morning I'd like to look with you at Philippians chapter 3, 12 through 16 as sort of a, a New Year's preview, review of what God is all about as he takes this passage and and presses it deep into our own souls. Here in Philippians 3, verse 12, we find these words. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So we're going to use this this metaphor of the athletic competition, which seems fitting on a weekend where we have seen endless bowl games and the Winter Classic and tonight's football game, and on and on it goes, to be able to see some principles for living that are found here that can relate to the way in which we go about living our lives based upon Christ's finished work. So let's look to our Lord in prayer. Our fathers, we're coming into your presence now. We're thanking you for being our God, the God who guides and directs, the God whose grace for us is sufficient to meet each and every need that we have, each and every challenge that we face. And there are a host of challenges here. Some of us feel like we're bringing our 2015 challenges into 2016. And others of us are facing new things, new issues, new difficulties perhaps that we have not encountered before. 
Some in these services have experienced loss in 2015 are wondering how to regain lost ground in 2016. Others are gaining traction where in 2015 they had more questions than answers and now in 2016 they've got some answers but the issue is now what do I do with what I've now discerned? There's a wide spectrum of people in this congregation with a wide spectrum of issues that are confronted. And we need the God who crosses the spectrums of life. In these minutes together, warm these hearts and engage these minds and shape these wills. For again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus and Him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. You don't have to be a runner to appreciate the story. It's called the perfect mile, and it's written by, by an individual, Neil Bascom, that has spent endless hours evaluating that time in the 1950s in which three men were in pursuit to the four-minute mile. Roger Bannister, Wes Santee, and John Landy. In its earliest pages, Bascom penned these thoughts. All three runners endured thousands of hours of training to shape their bodies and their minds. They ran more miles in a year than many of us walk in a lifetime. They spent a large part of their youth struggling for breath. They trained week after week to the point of collapse, all to shave off a second, maybe two during a mile race, the time it takes to snap one's fingers and to register the sound. There were sleepless nights and training sessions in rain, sleet, snow, and scorching heat. And there were times when they wanted to go out and to hang out with friends and be in settings other than the track itself, yet they knew that they couldn't. They understood life was somehow different for them. That idle happiness eluded them. If they were not training or racing or gathering the will required for these efforts, then they were trying not to think about training and racing at all. And when you ponder and you begin to think about what Bascom is writing here, what he is in essence saying with regard to these men is that these individuals had to say no to a lot of opportunities in order to reach one huge yes to be able to achieve their goal. What you and I are going to have to do as we take this passage this morning and relate it to where we stand is to ask ourselves, in the spectrum of the good, the better, and the best, and all of the life's options that are thrust before us, what is it that God may be saying to you and to me, Say no 
in order to pursue that which is the best. Because so often, the good and the better crowd out the best. And we fail to recognize what it is that God has truly clarified for your life, race, and mine. Now, there are three entailments that are involved here in this athletic journey that Paul now is utilizing as a metaphor to describe the Christ-centered approach to daily living. I want to check them out with you. And the first is found in the beginning of verse 12, and we're going to pen it like this, number one, that making Christ-centeredness our goal entails, number one, assessing our lives accurately. Now, to get a full sense of what that means, look at the beginning of verse 12 and ask yourself what kind of spiritual inventory is being described here that Paul is now pushing himself to in terms of some kind of spiritual assessment where he is able to honestly admit publicly Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect and stops right there because some people may have put him on a pedestal that he simply felt as though he was unworthy to climb. Now, when it says, not that I have already obtained this, the question is, what is this? If you and I were to track back to verses 10 and 11, notice some of the dynamics of his relationship to God through Jesus Christ that stand out. In verse 10, that I may know him. This is not some kind of intellectual knowledge, some kind of religious creed where you and I have sufficient information about But rather what he wants for you and for me as we're launching into this new year is to dedicate ourselves to a true pursuit of knowing God, as J.I. Packer would put it, in the most intimate way, shape, or form imaginable. To take his infinite, eternal, unchangeable nature and ask, practically speaking, what difference does that really make? in the way in which I go about living my life, in the way in which I run this race, you see. And he doesn't end there. He also adds in verse 10, and the power of his resurrection. In other words, when you feel so weakened by life circumstances, have you recognized that you have resurrection power prepared for you to apply on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection himself. Paul is utilizing this resource of resurrection power in order to be able to face the obstacles, and there were so many in so many shapes and forms that were thrust his way that would keep him from otherwise being what he wanted to be and going in the direction he wanted to go. Now, what direction is it that you are going toward right now? And what obstacles do you find yourself in the way of getting there? And as you now take into account your life assessment is the year has ended and new year begins, you are taking inventory and you're asking, but I, do I harness resurrection power in my mindset as, as I'm willing to take on these challenges that otherwise I would have rejected or pushed aside? 
and may share his sufferings. Paul is willing to enter into them for the sake of pursuing Christ, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In other words, he is looking toward the future when he's going to be standing before his Lord. And we've got to map out our 2016 in such a way that we know that it leads towards that future where we are going to be standing before our Lord. And we want to be able to resource all that God has for us in the here and now to prepare ourselves to be more equipped to live for him so that someday when we stand before him, we have served him in a way that brings honor and glory to his name. Notice with me now, twice the word already appears. In verse 12, not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect. And so now, with this word attained here, it carries with the idea of reaching the goal that God has set for you and God has set for me in order to achieve that which God has called us to do. Dr. David Allen tells the story. It's a grueling 543.7 mile endurance race from Sydney to Melbourne, Australia. The world's longest, the world's toughest ultramarathon. In 1983, 150 world-class runners converged on Sydney for the event. On the day of the race, get this, a toothless 61-year-old potato farmer and sheep herder named Cliff Young approached the registration table wearing overalls and galoshes over his work boots. At first, people thought he was there to watch the race. But to their surprise, Cliff Young declared his intention to run and requested a number. Now, Cliff Young had grown up on a farm without the benefit of luxuries like horses and four-wheel drives. And when the storms rode in, Cliff headed out to round up 2,000 sheep over a 2,000-acre farm. Sometimes he had to run them two or three days to complete the roundup. The incredulous staff issued Cliff number 64, and as he mingled with the other runners at the starting line, the spectators could not believe their eyes. This has got to be a joke, some mused. But when the gun went off, bystanders snickered at Cliff, left behind in his galoshes and overalls as the other runners, with their sculpted bodies and running gear, briskly began the race. Snickers gave way to laughter when Cliff began to run. Run, not like other runners, but what could only be described as a leisurely, odd shuffle. All of Australia was riveted to the live telecast as they watched the scene unfold. Someone should stop that crazy old man before he kills himself, they were saying. Five days, 15 hours, 
Four minutes later, Cliff Young came shuffling across the finish line in Melbourne, winning the ultramarathon. He did not win by a few seconds. He did not win by a few minutes. The nearest runner was nine hours and 56 minutes behind. Australians were stunned at this remarkable, yet seemingly impossible victory. How did it happen? Here you go. Everyone knew that to run the ultramarathon, runners would run for 18 hours, then stop and sleep for six hours. The routines repeated for five punishing days. But you see, no one told Cliff Young. He just shuffled along day and night. Day and night. Day and night. Without stopping sleep. And Cliff broke the previous race record by nine hours and became an overnight national hero. Interestingly, the writer goes on to say, professional runners began to study and experiment with the odd shuffle that Cliff used in his running. Many long-distance runners have since adopted what has come to be called the young shuffle due to its aerodynamic and energy efficiency. I just can't wait to see John McDonald doing this. <laughs> Making Christ-centeredness our goal entails assessing our lives accurately, but the reality is, is that some of us are at a different stage of life than those that are sitting around us. Others are at a different age of life compared to those around us. But regardless of the stage and regardless of the age, what is fascinating about the arena that is being described here is that it pertained to what was then known as the Isthmian Games, a precursor to the modern-day Olympics. And in the Isthmian games, runners would go out of their way to assess what was necessary in order to be able to quicken their pace. Now, as you and I venture into this new year, what we've got to do is to pause and to evaluate and ask, what is necessary for me to shut off A, B, or C, in order to truly achieve what it is that God has placed before me. Now for some, the obstacle is physical, and for others, the obstacle is job-related. For some, it seems to be a relationship that's got us so entangled, confused, and weighed down. But what we need to do at this point is to pause... In the midst of our assessments, ask what is necessary here to shave off some of those seconds 
that are critically important to be able to run the race in the manner in which God has called us to do so. The Isthmian games were not games for the non-citizen. And you could not achieve citizenship by coming in first. No, the games were meant only for citizens. Non-citizens were spectators, watching how citizens would perform. Likewise, you and I, if we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, have been placed in the arena of life. And the non-Christian, in many ways, is the spectator and watches very carefully on how you handle that confusing, conflicted relationship you find yourself in right now because they themselves are looking for a better way. And there are going to be the non-citizens, so to speak, that are in the stands, and they're watching how you are handling that job-related situation because they're going through tough times at work too right now, and they're wondering, how does a Christian manage these things? I'm all ears and I'm all eyes. And some of us are facing health issues that we did not expect in the prior year. But now the question is not how can I simply waste this experience, but rather how can I invest this experience in order to be more effective in the way in which God has called me to go about living my life. In other words, like a physical evaluation, the beginning of a new year gives us the opportunity for a spiritual evaluation to look very carefully at where we're at, to look back over 2015 and consider where we were, to process 2016 and say, where does God want me to be in light of where my heart is at in relationship to him, to know him and to apply resurrection power principles to the difficulties and the challenges that come my way. So I look at that very carefully. I begin to ask myself some serious questions. If necessary, how do I employ a a Cliff Young shuffle to make my way through my own 2016 experience? Now, Once you begin to walk yourself through this thorough evaluation, this spiritual inventory, taking stock in terms of a review of what 2015 was all about, and furthermore taking stock of a preview of what 2016 is all about, you begin to move from that sense of preparation to the matter of acceleration. Because now what we have here, if we continue this metaphor that the Apostle Paul has laid before us, the athletic imagery, is a second entailment that, number two, making Christ-centeredness our goal entails pursuing our goal, God's goal, relentlessly. Now, you read on to the second part of verse 12. And notice the wording here. It says, I press on. There is absolutely no passivity that has gripped Paul's mindset 
and created a sense of apathy about life. Has that happened to you? After you take this thorough evaluation, and I pause to say, I take myself through this twice, once at the end of December and once in June, because I find every six months is a good way to keep appraising, evaluating where I was, where I am, where I need to be. He says, I press on. That is a highly energized word at this point. To make it my own. In other words, he's taking on responsibility here. This carries with the idea of pressing on, of that with the athlete himself aggressively pursuing the goal. Now, the Apostle Paul uses athletic imagery all throughout his writings. In particular, anything that tied himself to the Greek culture. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, still with the Isthmian Games as a forerunner to the Olympic Games in mind, in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 24, he poses this question. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, which was a typical way of honoring the first place winner. But it was perishable he would have to run a race again. Never allow for the grace of the past to be such that you're living simply off of yesterday's grace. There's a 2016 to be run. And it's to be run in a Christ-centered way. He shifts the metaphor In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 26 26 says, So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. And then all of a sudden becomes pastoral, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. In other words, he's applying these principles to himself not just simply exhorting others in the process. And again, Bascom had written, all three runners endured thousands of hours of training to shape their bodies and minds. And they ran more miles in a year than many of us walk in a lifetime. And they spent a large part of their youth struggling for breath. And now we look at ourselves very carefully, and as the spiritual athletics now emerge at the forefront of what Paul is saying, we grip this idea, I press on to make it my own. The pressures from without, the press on from within, the collision that occurs, and we see ourselves forward. Why? Because again in verse 12, Christ Jesus has made me his own. And it's as if thou... He is looking at family. 
In the beginning of verse 13, he says to you and says to me, brothers, love that. I do not consider that I have made it my own. There's a humility attached to his maturity, as should be the case for you and me. I'm not where I ought to be. I'm further along than where I was. But I'm not where I ought to be. So what is necessary at that point? We need a sense of resolve the determination to move forward, even though we do not necessarily feel like it. But once the resolve is established at the beginning of verse 12, then the priority is set at the beginning of verse 13, and I want you to mark it with me. But one thing I do. I read it again. But one thing thing I do. Dawson Trotman of the Navigators Ministries said once, it is not these 40 things I dabble in, but rather this one thing I do. If you're a 40-thing dabbler, you're going to lack the necessary passion to channel yourself towards the this one thing matters most approach to life. Your spiritual, emotional stamina, the energy level has been dissipated. Like a river without banks. What you and I need to be able to say in the midst of the good, the better, and the best is that there are a wide range of options that would seize my attention. But upon seizing my attention, they're all momentary. They're fleeting. I've got to ask myself the critical questions among which include which one thing matters most. Now, Martha and Mary had Jesus in their home, didn't they? And Martha was incredibly busy. There's a religious busyness about Martha. Martha, on the other hand, sees Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Mary's soaking up the words, processing the truth that Jesus is communicating. Martha, you can almost picture her bursting out of the kitchen, goes up to him and says in Luke chapter 10, verse 40, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. In Luke chapter 10, verse 41, the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. I never want Jesus to say to me, Gary, Gary. One is sufficient, you say. Martha, Martha. 
Now listen for the plural. You are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Are you settling for less than the good portion? Or in your spiritual assessment, have you come to the conclusion that you, spiritual athlete that you are, can distinguish between the good, the better, and the best of all the various lives and attractions and opportunities of life and settled in your own inner conviction, I want the good portion. That this one thing I do and not be a a 40-thing dabbler. The resolve is there. It's found at the beginning You have pressed on, but combined with the resolve is the priority set. It's the one thing I do approach to life that drives you. But now you continue to work this strategy, and I can almost picture Paul now processing his own 2015-2016 tension into what comes next. Because you've got an element of the past, you've got an element of the future, and they create an attention that finds their centerpiece in the present. Look at the threefold time element here. We're at the end of verse 13, forgetting what lies behind. You've done your review work, and you've done it well. You've learned what sins you just continuously rehearse in your own mind, and again and again and again. And it's as if through in previous time periods you felt as though you were held captive to decisions made in your 20s or 30s or whatever. They're afflicting your your conscience even to this day, though you have repeatedly sought God And you need to know that his grace is sufficient. Unchain yourself. Runners don't do well running in chains. Forgetting what lies behind, you have repented of those sins. You put your faith and trust exclusively in Christ. That is your review. But now, straining forward to what lies ahead. There's your 2016 preview. The Greek word here for straining forward is the word picture of an athlete who is crossing that finish line and his body is taut, every muscle is stretched out as he's seeking to be able to perform at the finish line as he dreamed of at the beginning point of the race. 
it's toward what lies ahead. Now you nor I may not know clearly what lies ahead. But rather than approaching this whole thing passively, again, the press on is repeated here in verse 14, as it was mentioned in verse 12. I press on toward the goal. Underline that. Your goal is Christ-likeness for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Ponder the goal. New Year's Day. In the morning hours, I was still working on this text. And then finally, some of the family members gathered around in a a setting and have a meal together. And my sons said, Dad, I want to get you a place in the restaurant where, where there's bowl games happening and the winter classics happening so you can see Boston play Montreal. Montreal beat Boston, I'm sorry to say. But nonetheless, I'm there and I'm multitasking. You know. And I'm looking up and, I, and I, I see, listen to this word, I see the goalie. And it's a three-on-two break, and Montreal is making their way down the ice and past the blue line. And all of a sudden, the light goes on because someone has scored a goal. Meanwhile, in the background, my ears are taking in the Notre Dame-Ohio State game. And the announcer is processing whether or not they're going to cross the goal line or whether or not they're going to have to kick a three-point field goal. And within a matter of seconds, I saw four different elements of this idea of goal. I couldn't get the text out of my head. Because what God has done in the spiritual athletics of life is to establish not goals that we ourselves might prefer, but rather the ego that he himself ordains of Christ's likeness, which might entail challenges, which might include such things as sufferings, which might involve loss. But in God's sovereign time, he takes the challenges. He takes the sufferings. He takes the losses. And he puts together a strategy for you and for me to be able to run in a way that not honors us, but honors God. So you've got the resolve there, I press on. You've got the priority there, the this one thing I do. And now you've taken together this process of the past, the future, brought it right into the present and say, I press on, no matter how you're feeling. I press on toward the goal. And whenever you're watching, even tonight's Packer game, Ponder the goal line and take your thought processes to this very passage and think about, and what is it that God is saying to me? 
in light of all the imagery of life that's thrust before me that needs to be clarified under the auspices of God's word, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God where in Christ Jesus. For as Bascom put it, they trained week after week to the point of collapse. All to shave off a second, maybe two, during a mile race. Which leads us thirdly and finally to this. Making Christ-centeredness our goal entails developing our maturity collectively. In verse 15, Paul shifts pronouns from I to us. Let those of us who are what? Mature think this way. Think. In other words, develop, cultivate, discipline a Christian mindset that takes into account that life is difficult, the journey is challenging. Jesus paved the way and gave us the example by going to the cross to die as our substitute for our sins, and three days later it's validated by his resurrection from the grave. You begin to think Christianly in the midst of this race of 2016, not secularly. Let those of us who are mature think this way, maturity. It's so easy to grow old in the Lord rather than to grow up in the Lord, wouldn't you say? And if anything you think otherwise, well, God will reveal that also to you. In other words, when you think your mindset is hardened, And that you shouldn't have to go through A, B, and C, even though others have. Lo and behold, here comes A, B, and C. But because you have assessed your life accurately and pursued this goal relentlessly, what you and I have to do now as a congregation through our adult Bible fellowships, our life groups, our various worship teams, and so on, with a togetherness now in mind. Develop our maturity collectively, not isolation from one another, rather integration with one another. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So you bring that sense of, I'm not the only one. We're all in this thing together. Exhausted from a previous race, a high school track star from Ohio was in last place in a 3,200-meter race last year. She saw the competitor in front of her start to fall just a few meters from the finish. Though runners can be disqualified for physically helping other runners... Megan Vogel put her arm around Auden McMath and helped carry her to the end. Even making sure McMath crossed first. Quote, It's strange to have people telling me that this was such a powerful act of kindness and using words like humanity. 
I don't consider myself a hero. I just did what I knew was right and what I was supposed to do for someone else at the right time. We're all in this together, you know, she adds. And Paul would add, because now what he does is he ties together this idea of maturity with the idea of unity, with the word us. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. In other words, be true to the testimony of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Your faith is rooted in him and him alone. They trained week after week to the point of collapse, all to shave off a second, maybe two during a mile race, the time it takes to snap one's fingers, register the sound, sleepless nights, training sessions in rain, sleep, snow, scorching heat. There were times they wanted to go out and just hang out and do something different, but they knew they couldn't. They understood life was somehow different for them as is for the believer. That idle happiness eluded them, for if they weren't training or racing or gathering the will required for these efforts, they were trying not to think about training and racing at all. And out of this comes the stark statement that the three men of the 1950s, Bannister, Sante, and Landy, illustrate for us. You're going to have to say no to a lot of things in order to say yes to what matters most in life. And that is Jesus Christ, risen Savior and Lord, for 2016. Let's stand together. Your truth is found everywhere we look. Even the athletic events of these days captures our attention with the way in which life's constructed. But Father, there are spectators observing carefully how the believers of this church run the race you have designed. I pray, Lord, that as 2016 unfolds, no matter what it brings our way, we keep our eyes focused upon Jesus Christ. Keep Jesus central, not peripheral, to what we're all about. We'll look back and give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.